Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. All right, and we are live. So just before we get started with uh, this whole Q&A thing that I wanted to do, I uh, just wanted to say if you enjoy the content, please think about uh, helping support the podcast uh, over at Patreon, and that's uh, uh, Sailing Into Oblivion. So with that, I wanted to sort of just get into a few uh, answers to some of these questions. And a lot of these are actually coming from different platforms, whether it be YouTube or uh, TikTok. And um, I just know that I get quite a few questions and I don't actually have a ton of time to answer all of them. Uh, in text form individually, and I see a lot of repeat questions, uh, so I'm going to try and tackle uh, as many of those as I can uh, today in depth, so hopefully you guys will enjoy this, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll just jump right in. I, I listed a whole bunch of them, um, and the first one is about swimming, and do I ever go swimming? And when do I swim and what do I actually do if I actually swim? And it's a good question. It's it's kind of a strange thing for me when I'm out there because, you know, you're by yourself. And one of the things, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm terrified of getting, you know, uh, a shark attack or something like that. But for whatever reason, the thought of jumping off the boat and swimming in the open ocean where it's anywhere from a mile to five miles deep is it just sort of brings about a little hesitancy in my mind when I'm looking over it um like for instance if I've been motoring then I usually am a little more cautious just because I know there's been times where I've turned on the engine uh, or turn the engine off, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, appears a pod of dolphins. Uh, just because you know those that the sound of that engine brings about uh, a lot of things from from the surrounding area because it it echoes for probably hundreds of miles. I I don't know, but I know sound travels in the water. And one of my big things, is if I ever am gonna jump in for a swim, or if I have to actually inspect something underneath the boat, then I'm, I'm usually pretty cautious about trying not to draw any attention to myself. And one of the reasons I, I remember doing a repair, oh, I think it was on the trip around the world. And, um, I had to do, yeah, I was, I was hammering, uh, some parts on the boom and after about 10, 15 minutes of doing that, uh, a bunch of dolphins came up. And so obviously that pinging sound, because I was hammering the boom and it was on the deck of the boat. So that was echoing through. So I don't know. I, I've always been sort of apparent of, about that. And, and one of the times that I do actually uh, hop in the water is if I'm scraping some of the gooseneck barnacles off of the bottom of the boat, typically... Those start growing after about two months or so out at sea, even on fresh anti-fouling paint. And 
I've I've jumped in to go and scrape those, but even that in my head, uh, essentially what I'm doing is is leaving a trail of breadcrumbs that are <laughs> slipping away into the the vast void of the depths and uh, possibly leading something right up to me. So I usually, if I'm going to do that, I'll do maybe 45 minutes or so. It's also pretty strenuous to clean the bottom of a boat uh, out in the open ocean because the boat's always moving uh, just a little bit, either rocking or or what. But um, I guess the answer to the question is, yes, I have I have gone out and, and gone swimming a couple of times just for the fun of it. And um, to absolutely do when I'm on a trip with other people. Uh, I remember one time, we came up from, oh man, where were we coming from? Uh, we were coming from the Virgin Islands going up to the East Coast, and I think we went north of um, north of Puerto Rico, and we were over the Puerto Rico Trench where it's about 27,000 feet deep, and we swam there just because it's kind of a cool feeling to, to be floating there looking down. I remember I had a, a mask on. Just looking down at this this beautiful blue water that just extended, you knew you were floating miles and miles and miles above uh, this void. So, so that was pretty cool. I mean, it doesn't happen very often that I'll actually just go for a swim, but when it gets really calm and I've been motoring and stuff like that, um, or just drifting through the night, it, it looks pretty pretty uh, appetizing to hop in there, especially when it's really hot. Um, but the majority of time that I actually hop in the water, it's either to scrape the bottom or do some sort of inspection. Uh, I, on one of the training trips, uh, a, sort of out in the Atlantic for about a month, way back before, before the first trip around the world, I had a, a leak coming in through one of the transducers that, you know, shows you the depth and, it was coming in not much, but enough that I sort of wanted to see if I could fix it and went down there with some sawdust in a bag and I opened it up and rubbed that all around the transducer and surprisingly, it actually worked. It uh, sucked up some of the, the wood particles and then once they were wet, they expanded and uh, sealed it for the rest of that uh, rest of that trip, which was pretty neat. Um, but other than that, it was cut and free cutting free a line that got wrapped around the prop uh, on the big trip. I had to do that and then um, doing a little scraping of the bottom as well. And that, that actually was in the same, <laughs> in the same series of events. I was down there scraping the bottom and I had actually tied a line from the bow of the boat and so that it went underneath the boat. It was still a little choppy out. So I wanted to have something to hold on to and, uh, when I got back on deck, I fired up the engine and just just to work the transmission a little bit, I put it in gear, but I'd forgotten to pull that line back in and uh, wham, all of a sudden the engine steezed up and I look over and realize that uh, the line's all wrapped up. So after I was nice and clean and dry, I had to hop back in the water and, and take care of that. So lesson learned. But, uh, yeah, so to answer that question, yeah, I definitely, I definitely swim. Um, not that often, but I, I do it. And typically anytime I hop in the water, it's, it's going to be where it's 
dead flat calm and I always, always make sure to take the sails down. I don't really trail a line behind or anything like that. Um, even though the boat does seem to kind of be moving no matter what, but, uh, I, yeah, I stick pretty close and usually it's pretty, pretty, uh, fast operation, get in, swim around a little and then get out. But, uh, yeah, so definitely do it. Um, but just not too, too much. Uh, the next question was, how long have I been sailing for? And um, right now, I, I just turned 43, and I started sailing when I was 18. So doing the math, that's about 25 years now. And uh, yeah, I guess you could say for, for a lot of sailors, I comparatively have started out pretty late uh, in my life. Um, you know, 18... 18 is definitely on the, the older spectrum for, for somebody who turns into like a career sailor. But yeah, that was, that was sort of when I started and it was on uh, Hobie 16 and it was mostly actually solo sailing, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I used to, it was one of those things where the first time I went out, it just clicked. Absolutely made perfect sense. Um, and I think it was in that same day I was out there and, and sort of flying the hall and just having an absolute blast. And I think from that day on, I, it was one of those, it was one of those times where I really just discovered, uh, something that became an absolute passion, the passion, uh, of my life and, and really directed where I went, what I did, how hard I worked. Um, it really was pretty amazing. I think it was two years after that or one year after learning how to sail when I started teaching it. And then it just all went from there and ended up doing yacht deliveries, going to the Caribbean, all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, it's never too late to sail, uh, to learn how to do it, you know, at 18. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, I was around sailboats when I was younger, but never, Never had any interest, never even thought twice about it. I'd never actually sailed a boat before. I, I think I'd been sailing a few times with my dad, but never really enjoyed it. Uh, I used to get terribly seasick when I was a child uh, on any boat, but I used to get car sick and airplane sick. I was just throwing up all over the place. <laughs> so that, uh, that I don't know. I, I don't know if that some strange thing that's change in the way that uh you know as a kid uh, you're doing that and then now I can be out in pretty pretty serious waves uh and not not really feel a thing although we'll say that I still out of tradition mostly but the the day of of leaving on any sort of ocean trip I always always take a dramamine just out of tradition uh and it seems to uh, always work because I have not uh, been seasick. I don't think I've ever been seasick in my adult life, which is kind of cool. And I, I'll tell you, I have to give my hats off to there's a lot of sailors that get seasick no matter what. They'll, they'll get out there, and if the seas get a little rough, they're, they're throwing up, and they still go out there. And I know how miserable it feels. I mean, it's like the worst hangover in the world and you're just miserable you can't stop it and for for somebody to put up with that 
is absolutely tremendous in my book. Um, I had a crew member who was one of the guys that I hiked on the AT with, and he came along for a trip from South Carolina to Maine. And he was a bit queasy, you know, he fed the fish a couple of times, but he just, he kept, he kept not only going, but he kept positive and uh, just sort of dealt with it. Uh, so it was, it was actually pretty impressive to see that. So I don't know if you'll hear this, but kudos to uh, old Bo Jangles. That's his trail name. Real name's Ben. So shout out to Ben. But yeah, that's how, how long I've been sailing now. So 20, 25 years and it would have been 19 years or something when I departed on my big trip around the world. So that's always something to sort of think about before kind of planning or, or thinking you might want to go and, and do a, a solo trip around the world or some monster, monster uh, adventure. There was a lot of experience that went into my sailing career before I even even sort of fathom doing something like that so always got to have that uh the next one do i fish yes i do fish and uh pretty basic setup on the old sparrow i just use a hand line and essentially that's just a big big old uh circular plastic thing and you wrap a bunch of line around it with a big old lure and I just spool that out and then I cleat the line off uh, right on the boat and usually do a little bit of a bungee cord sort of action so with a, uh, a beer can on it and that way I get to drink a beer and then I use that so that if a fish strikes it it'll clink and clank and then uh, I'll come up if I'm down below or taking a nap or something and it works out pretty well. I I think kind of the cool part about fishing out out on the open ocean is that you uh unlike when when you're on a canoe or something like that you're you're not really besides setting it up you're not really involved and you can you can trail it behind you for 12 hours during the daylight. Uh, I don't really fish at night. Uh, I only one time left left it out and uh, lost that lure and half the line by the next morning because I think something really big came along. So, and I wouldn't want to deal with a fish at night in the cockpit, especially if it's kind of rough. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty much if I'm not if I'm in certain sections of the ocean, I'm always fishing. There's other places, though, uh, and I'm finding them more and more that I don't fish, and that is actually from the microplastics and the garbage that's that's becoming more and more prevalent out, out in the Atlantic Ocean, and well, all the oceans, I, I guess, but um, around the Azores High and around Bermuda are some of the places that I've found most of the concentration of, of plastic. And the, the reason I don't fish there is that the fish are eating that. So the flying fish and the small stuff are eating the microplastics and then the bigger fish eat them, which are the ones that I'm catching. And, and I've, I've opened up the belly of both flying fish and, uh, mahi mahi, which is, a this big, beautiful, like blue green, fish you know i'll usually catch three footers two three footers and but yeah there was my first experience with 
fishing. I think it was in the Atlantic near the Bermuda High, and I caught one. And I was just kind of curious uh, to see sort of what was what it was eating. And when I popped that sucker open, uh, it it had plastic like chunks in it and small plastic and. I don't know. I mean, you know, that stuff's just getting right into its bloodstream. So definitely not something you want to eat. So if I see, if I start seeing garbage out there, uh, pretty much all day. And, and when I say that, it's not like there's like a floating Island or anything, but it's, it's more, if I look around, chances are I could point out a piece of garbage floating there. And if I'm stopped and just drifting, you look into the ocean and you can start to differentiate little pieces of plastic from just little floating either organisms or pieces of seaweed. And those are the areas where line comes in because they, you know, there's no, I'm not going to eat the fish I catch. And there's, I, I don't, I don't fish for sort of sport out there. It's, uh, it's definitely more for food, but uh, one of the, one of the most memorable fish I ever got was down south of New Zealand. And this was on the first trip already sort of worrying about the food and everything like that. And I was able to catch a small tuna and man, holy cow. I was just really lucky because I didn't realize I had actually caught it. The little beer can trick didn't work out all that well, but I, I noticed that the line was taut and so I went back and started reeling in. I thought maybe some seaweed or something. And I'm seeing this fish, and the fish isn't moving at all. So it had, it had been dragging for quite a long time, I guess. The poor little guy. But got him on board, and it was only maybe two foot or something, but a tuna is thick. So it fed me for quite a while. Uh, I got some really good meals, and it was just like an extra bit of fresh freshness that I hadn't had in forever. Um, by that point I had been months without eating fresh food. It was all canned food and MREs and all that sort of stuff. So that, that was pretty cool. So yeah, I definitely, definitely like to catch the fish cause it, it's, it's really easy to, uh, it's an e- usually an easy meal to cook and it tastes great. You can eat it raw or you can, you can chomp down on some fried fish or saute it, you know, there's a million different ways, but uh, on this last trip, I, I definitely ate a lot of flying fish. Uh, they were, they were winding up on the deck quite often. And I, I wasn't hungry enough where I would wake up in the middle of the night when one landed and, and go cook it like that. But in the morning, if they're not stiff as the board and there's two or three of them, they're really easy to clean. Usually they're only about six or eight inches long and just throw them in and that's your breakfast. They're pretty bony, but they're they're really good. I I definitely like the the taste of them. They kind of taste like whitefish or walleye if you've ever had some of that freshwater fish. Mm. But um, yeah, so definitely definitely fish out there, but keeping it super basic. That also makes it really inexpensive. I couldn't imagine, you know, I don't I don't see too much point in having uh, a fishing line or a fishing uh, pole and all that sort of stuff. They're they get kind of pricey and. You got to stow it and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, just the little spools, a couple bucks, and then you get a, a couple spools of line and, and a bunch of hooks. And I actually used to use, uh, I used to make my own lures out of old beer cans. Um, you'd cut them into the sort of shape of a squid, uh, 
roll it up and then put the hook in it. And I definitely caught a lot of fish doing that. So there's ways to make it super cheap. Cause if you go into one of those shops and, and look at fishing equipment, that stuff's expensive, especially when it's the big stuff, uh, for, for the ocean. Holy cow. Some of those lures is like 40, 50 bucks. And even the cheap ones are like 10 or 12. And, uh, you know, chances are you're going to lose one now and again. So things to think about. Uh, all right. Um, how, okay. How do I keep from falling overboard? Okay. So this one, this question, I guess it's sort of, uh, it comes up quite often. Uh, for people who have seen some of the videos and stuff, because they see me sort of walking around the boat and I'm not tied to anything. And, um, I can see how that, that can seem a little bit scary and a little bit foolish. Um, and so I, I do want to say before I, before I answer this question, this is only what I would recommend myself doing. And, uh, I don't recommend it for other people. You have to, you have to find what sort of safety measures you want to take uh, when you're out there. And I always recommend using as many of them as possible. Um, but for me, in my own world, uh, I really, I have the equipment to be able to run what's called a jack line, which runs down either side of the boat, which if you're wearing a harness, you can then clip onto that. And you can go forward and come back, and it's usually pretty good. Doesn't impede your motion very much, um, and uh, is is pretty commonplace on most boats. And I I've definitely used them before on deliveries and things like that where I'm sailing with other people. Now, when I'm out there, uh, unless the weather is absolutely horrific, and I, I think I'm going to be in for it for a long time. I might run some jack lines out there just in case. And I do have the harness and the tether and all that. But typically, all I do is try and always hold on as tight as possible and always think about what you're doing and always stay aware of the surroundings. You don't get too caught up in whatever you're trying to do, whether it's put a sail up or take a sail down or put a reef in and whatnot. You always have to make sure you're kind of keeping your awareness up around the boat for some oddball wave or some big gust of wind. I don't know, something that can come up uh, where all of a sudden like the boat gets thrown in one direction or, or a wave crashes actually on the deck because that can wash you right away. And, uh, you, you know, you think you can, you can hold on tight enough to battle through, uh, an actual breaking big wave. And chances are you actually can't, um, do that, especially if you're not ready for it. But one of the reasons, uh, that I, typically don't use anything like that is to, to actually keep my wits about me and, um, not be lulled into sort of a false sense of security. And by that, I, I really just mean that I've seen people and probably in the past have done things myself that were unnecessary and dangerous all because I was clipped to a line 
and sort of felt like I was safe. And in all actuality, even if you are tethered in and you get washed over the side of the boat, especially as a solo sailor, chances are you are not going to be able to scramble back on board. And if part of the reason that you were in the situation that led to you being put overboard uh, was the fact that you felt confident because you were tethered in, and if you weren't tethered in, you wouldn't have gone up there and done it, then that is sort of my thinking. Um, There's also just the fact that if you know that you are not clipped in and you go forward on the boat or even just sitting in the cockpit in really rough weather, if you're if you are knocked overboard, you're going to have about a minute or two of watching that boat sail because it's not going to stop and it's just going to be disappearing and it's going to disappear fast. And you're going to have that little bit of time before you end up sinking. And that is basically it. And when you realize that and you know that you hold on a heck of a lot tighter to that boat and you make your movements with both hands and both feet all the time. You don't really mess around. Now there, I I must admit, even when I look at some of my videos, I'm definitely sort of messing around a little bit. Um, Normally it's just in really, really light conditions, but again, the boat's still moving. So it is kind of, it is kind of dangerous, but um, that's also sort of the risk you take when you're out there sailing, it's just one of the inherent things that just like walking down the sidewalk, you can trip and, and all of a sudden stumble into traffic. Well, I could trip and all of a sudden find myself in the water and, uh, and then I'm, that's it. And, uh, <laughs> and actually that, that sort of leads me into the, the, the next question of, uh, how come I don't wear a life jacket? And and that one, that one I think is is far more self-explanatory for for a solo sailor. And again, life jackets are great. They should always be worn whenever you're on a boat, especially if you're in close to land um, with other people on the boat, especially with other people on a boat. That one's that one's a big one because you know you fall overboard, especially in rough weather. It might take that boat a few minutes to get back to you. It might take that boat 30 minutes to get back to you. And if you're sitting in the in the open ocean, you will be definitely wishing you had a life jacket on because that's a struggle, especially if you have boots and pants and all that sort of stuff on like you normally would ocean sailing. So that one's always, uh, always recommend that sort of stuff. But um, for a solo sailor, it's definitely wildly different. Um, best way I can describe this. If I fall overboard and I have a life jacket on, then essentially I have just created one of the most terrifying circumstances I think I can ever imagine. And that's the fact that now I am floating on the sea until something comes and eats me. And that's not a uh, made up thing. That's, that's just a true fact that if you sit in that ocean long enough, something is going to come along and start nipping away. And then the next thing that comes along is bigger until basically you're, you're getting picked apart. And the only thing you can do outside of that is to take that life jacket off and, and sort of, 
you know, let yourself go. And these, these, this is pretty morbid (laughs) topic, but this this is what people want to know. Um, yeah, you're, you're basically just extending your misery and actually I believe making it potentially way, way, way more terrifying. Um, and so, cause you know, like I said, that boat's going to keep going. I mean, you, you, I guess you can make an argument for, well, you never know, maybe the wind will die or maybe, uh, something will happen on the boat where it doesn't, where it, it, you know, something happens and you can catch up to it. So I, I would assume if I had a life jacket, I'd probably try to swim towards the boat, but it's going to get away from you so fast and just extend its lead. Uh, absolutely impossible. But, but here's the thing. If you had a chance, especially with a boat like Mighty Sparrow, which isn't moving that fast, but it's moving typically five, six miles an hour, uh, trying to swim that fast. I don't even know. I, I don't know if you can actually humanly possibly go that fast unless you're, you're like an Olympian, but, um, fully clothed and stuff like that. I know, I know if I had a chance, it'd be for about three or four seconds of absolute panic swimming to try and catch up to the boat. Um, you know, right after you fell in and if I had a life jacket on, it would probably slow me way down and I'd want my best shot to get there, I suppose. Uh, the only other thing with, with the, why I don't wear a life jacket when I solo sail again, don't recommend that for anybody. Um, is that it, it sort of impedes my motion and I want to be able to move around the boat as freely and as quickly as possible uh, without as m- any constraints or around or on me. And uh, I do have one sort of nightmare scenario. This was on a small boat, but um, I was on this tiny lake and I want to say it was a laser two, which is this tiny little 12, 15 foot um, skiff. So like a little fast boat. And we had rigged this thing up with a crazy bow sprit and, uh, it was, it was fun. Put windsurf, uh, foot straps on it. Anyways, it's a really technical little boat, lots of lines and wires everywhere and super powered up and stuff. And, uh, it was a pretty windy day. It's a small lake, only like a mile wide or something like that. But, um, I ended up capsizing. So the boat, flips over. I get thrown onto the sails. I was wearing a vest life jacket at the time and the wind and the motion of the boat basically pushed the the mast and the sails down underneath the water. And it was windy enough and the boat was moving downwind enough that, uh, uh, I was sort of tangled up. My life jacket got hooked on some of these little wires and, as it went down, it pulled me down too. And it took, it took a few, like maybe, I mean, it's hard to really imagine, but five, five, 10 seconds of sort of struggling. And before I realized sort of what was going on and I still don't know exactly what was going on in my head, but I do remember just pausing for a second and feeling and feeling and feeling not struggling and panicking and was able to unhook the one of the one or two of the buckles that had gotten wedged in between the uh the wire that's connected and the mast and then slide that out and then I popped right back up um but that was a pretty scary experience and I I think personally that was one of the things that really put me off about life jackets uh was going through that and sort of I I wouldn't say it was a life well 
I mean, you're getting held under. I suppose if I would have tangled up really, really bad and couldn't have gotten out, uh, that would have been, yeah, life-threatening. But, um, yeah, so I don't know. Life jacket almost killed me. <laughs> but, again, uh, on that whole safety, you know, with, with tethers and hooking in and, and life jackets, always, always use your best judgment. And uh, what I do is not what I recommend for, for other people to do. So I think I covered my butt there on disclaimers. <laughs> Did I say it enough? I hope so. Oh, man. Yeah, it's always a touchy, topic, uh, touchy subject because especially when I do my live presentations, um, guaranteed always, always going to get that in the Q&A section at the end and always have to start off with the safety message because, you know, there's nothing I, I would feel horrible if, if somebody went out there and fell overboard and died. And it was like a well-known thing that they, they listened to everything I did and that, that would, that'd be pretty bad. So always, always, uh, use your own judgment call. Uh, all right. Oh, okay. How do I sleep? This one is probably the most popular question I, I probably get. And I, I understand that like it, it must seem pretty crazy, especially when you see videos of the waves and the boat moving along, the boat's tilted way over. Like how, how on earth could you ever sleep in those sort of conditions? Well, it's one of those things where out at sea, there's a rhythm to everything. So even if the waves are 20 feet, there is a rhythm to how the boat starts to move. And <clears throat> one of the things that, that I find is that you get very used to incredible conditions out at sea. And it may take a day or so, but as the hours tick by, everything, it becomes very normalized, no matter how chaotic or, or noisy or disruptive it may seem. And out at sea... Even though you're not out being able to run around or or do a, a ton of like cardio exercise, you are constantly being jostled and moved around. So I I call it sea weariness, where you're you're kind of tired and sluggish because you're you're always holding on to things and constantly shifting, and you've got muscles that are are always sort of flexing a little bit. To, keep you in the right position and stuff. So you are actually exerting a lot of, of, uh, energy and stuff. So you, you do get tired. It's not like you just lay around all day and do nothing. Um, and it's, it's cold sometimes or it's hot and you're sweating, all that sort of stuff. So you do, you do sort of get some exercise. And, um, so eventually you are going to get tired and, when you get sleep deprived as a slow as a solo sailor, you would be amazed at the conditions that you can sail uh, and and go and just head down, hit your bunk, and pass right out. Now, I will say the sleeping that I do is very rarely deep sleep um, to the point where I'm having dreams and all that. When I do have those dreams, they're usually super vivid. And crazy. I'd say I'd say I get to that state maybe once a week or once every ten days out there. Um, and I understand that why you know the the dreams. I've heard that 
in your mind if you if you don't reach that deep sleep day after day after day after day it's sort of when you finally do your brain like releases all this stuff and your dreams are just absolutely crazy at least i've i've heard that so uh yeah i i basically you know i'm tucked into like this little bunk and I usually have like five or six different pillows and cushions because you, you sort of have to wedge yourself in. I, th- I think one of the, the hardest times to sleep on the boat is when you're going straight downwind and the boat is rolling from side to side equally because your body is, you know, you're trying to basically balance yourself and you, you almost have to wedge yourself into like a gutter. Um, and normally, if the boat's heeled over to one side and it's sailing, then you know you get sort of pinned up against one side. You lean up against your pillows, and you're you're sort of snug there. But yeah, when you're rolling, if you're if you're not in like a gutter, like a V, then your body, if it's able to move six inches or halfway roll every I don't know ten fifteen seconds, you never fall asleep, or it's it's at least very hard. So. I typically just wedge myself in and try and get an hour or so of sleep. Um, I don't set any alarms or anything like that, but I find that typically I can sleep for an hour or two without too much issue. If I do wake up, I will typically hop out of my bunk, take a look on deck, make sure there's nothing around, and, and normally out on the open ocean, Traffic is very minimal uh, unless you're cutting through one of the the major shipping routes, and you usually know that pretty well uh, as far as you start sighting ships and you'll see them all day, and then all of a sudden they'll disappear, and you won't see anything else for ten days or a week, you know something like that. And and in that time, then you get pretty comfortable. It also depends on where you're sailing. The South Atlantic, you barely see anybody. The Southern Ocean, I was down there for four and a half months, and I only saw four boats. Two of them were fishing boats near New Zealand. So uh, pretty empty places out there. And the, it's one of the things you find find out when you get out there, and especially when you start crossing oceans, uh, you really get a sense of scale of just how absolutely gigantic and just empty the oceans are it's it's absolutely incredible i mean when i had to do the turnaround on this last voyage just past the equator you know i'm looking at that chart going okay uh, i'm trying to get back home and it's probably going to take 30 to 45 days just to get home you know and that's (laughs) that's you just and you know you're moving that whole time pretty much um covering 100 150 miles every day so it's absolutely wide open, and that that always helps when you're when you're trying to sleep, um, knowing that you don't really have to worry about it. But it also comes into play with you know having the proper equipment. So, for my money, the AIS is is absolutely essential. Uh, I know some people have radar as well. I don't have any radar on the boat. I figure the AIS is pretty much all I really really need. Um, Plus, just the power consumption of radar and the cost of the equipment, it just seems like it's a little too much. But I'm also not sailing in in really foggy areas much. And, 
you know, I've dealt with enough squalls. It, it was kind of nice on those super pitch black nights to be able to see the squalls uh, coming because the radar will show you the the little patch of squall rain. It'll show up as a big patch on the on the screen. So that's kind of helpful, but I don't know. I've made it made it pretty far without any of that sort of stuff. So not too worried about it. But um, yeah, so typically if if I can, I'll take a nap during the day for an hour or two. And then I usually make it past sunset around about 11, 12 o'clock at night. That's when I'll, I'll try and turn in and sleep until, you know, if, if the, if the ocean will let me and the, the squalls will let me, I'll sleep until easily, uh, five, six o'clock in the morning and then pop back up to see the sunrise and, and go from there. And that, that works out to be pretty good. I mean, in, in every 24 hours sleeping for between five and, uh, and seven hours, that's, that's all I really, really needed. And I, I find that I don't actually get too exhausted, uh, or too run down. Obviously there's, there's definitely times where, I don't get to sleep, um, namely because of traffic or, or because of land. But, uh, the worst one was as I was sailing up, closing in on the Falkland islands. And I think I made it 40, 42 or 46 hours without sleeping a wink, not even laying down in my bunk. And it was stressful and it was cold and there were hail squalls and it was, it was insane. Um, but that, I think that's the longest I've ever in my whole life, uh, not slept for. And it, you, you, I didn't start really hallucinating, but boy, I was, whew, I mean, you just, you can't make really great decisions and it's, it's hard to do anything. I think what it, even just staying up for 24 hours, you're, it's, it's hard and 36 and uh, I don't know, it's, it's pretty crazy. You know, when somebody says, yeah, you know, I stayed up for two days, it wasn't too big a deal. I I'm pretty sure they're, they're lying. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're, they like laid down and, uh, thought they didn't go to sleep, but they actually slept. Um, so who knows? Cause it is, it's, it's pretty rough. Uh, it's not easy to do. That's for sure. But yeah, so that's that's uh, sleeping on on the boat, and and it is one of the big priorities because the more sleep you get, the better prepared you are for when you're not able to sleep. Because there are definitely times I know I I even during that subtropical cyclone Wanda, I was able to sleep for like an hour, and I was exhausted from from the days before for sure, but. Uh, once the wind, once the sort of the eye wall was approaching, the winds cranked way up and it was so loud. Now, granted, we weren't sailing, we were hove to, so that calmed the boat down a bit. But just the sound of that wind kept me awake for a long time. It wasn't until I was just so exhausted that I, I was able to just let my body go to sleep. And I, I had actually slept not even in my bunk. I was in my foul weather gears, uh, on the floor of the boat, the soul, the cabin soul. And I just slept down there and woke up, uh, to the banging of the, the sail when the eye actually passed over and the wind died for about 15, 20 minutes. So it's pretty incredible what you can sleep through out there. And, uh, but the one thing you can't 
is when there's traffic around. That AIS goes off, and you got to stay up and make sure nothing's gonna nothing's gonna hit you because it's not it's not so much you not wanting to be hit, but uh, you don't want to be a hazard to anybody else. And uh, a solo sailor inherently is a hazard out there because there's nobody keeping a watch um, except your AIS. And for whatever reason, if that decides not to work, then you're, you're just tunneling through, <laughs> tunneling, tunneling through the ocean out there without uh, a care for anybody else. And that's something you have to take seriously that you, you're supposed to maintain a lookout all the time. Um, obviously solo sailor can't do that, but um, you know, that's just another one of the inherent risks of the old solo sailor. Oh, we're, we're a tough cookie out there. Um, okay. Let's see. Do, do, do. How do I sleep? Okay. Here's, here's a couple of the oddball ones. Uh, I do get these, these pretty often. Uh, do I ever see, or have I ever seen any UFO activity? Uh, and the answer to that is maybe, <laughs> um, in the night sky, I've definitely seen some weird stuff. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta think of yourself. You're out there, you don't have TV, you don't have any of that sort of stuff, and you're up a lot of nights, and the stars are absolutely amazing. I could stare up there uh, for hours and hours on end, and I often do. Um, and I do see a lot of odd stuff. Uh, I know I've seen what I'm pretty sure was Air Force One. It was a big, big uh, uh, like jumbo jet and then two two little fighter jets next to it. I saw that through my binoculars. Um, I saw, uh, two trips ago. I saw off the coast of Africa, um, some of the Starlink satellites all in a line, like shooting through. And I thought that was a UFO cause I didn't know about Starlink. Um, but that was pretty cool. I see a lot of flashes, uh, from the sky where I can't see a satellite moving. And, uh, then I just see what appears to be like a camera flash, but, um, the UFO activity, the actual ones where, uh, I don't think they can be explained away as satellites. There have been a couple of times where I have seen, Essentially, I know I know the stars and the planets pretty well. And if there's something bright up there that is not normal, I usually it just I pick it up. It, I see it and it sticks out. And there've been two occasions where I I'm looking at something I'm that's that is not anything that should be right where that is there and on one occasion, it brightened up and brightened up well past the brightness of Venus, and then it just dimmed out and dimmed out and dimmed out over over the course of maybe 30 or 45 seconds. Um, so that was pretty odd to see that. That was in, oh, I want to say that was in the South Atlantic Ocean, where once you get south of the equator far enough, uh, you don't see any real airplane action. You only see satellites because there aren't really a whole lot of uh, flight routes down there. Mm. But um, the other time and the one that I, I think was something really strange was same sort of thing, something much brighter than Venus, which 
outside of the moon and sun is the the brightest sort of star type object you see. And I'm looking at it and I see it right next to, I believe it was either Jupiter. Uh, yeah, it must've been Jupiter because it was on the other side of the, from the sun. And I knew I was seeing Jupiter, but this thing was much brighter. And then, and I, I'm only saying this because this is what I saw. If you, if you stuck your thumb out, um, or if you stuck your arm out and extend your thumb up, it's about the size of the moon in the sky. So this object, this brighter object went and it basically, it started out and, and it's, it's about a thumb length away from Jupiter. So it's, it's pretty close. And all of a sudden it starts to slowly go down underneath Jupiter and then around to the other side and then above it. And then it came back to its original spot and then it slowly dimmed out and disappeared. And that was it. And that was over maybe a 10 second, 15 second period. Um, and that one left me scratching my head all night. I had no idea what that was. Um, and that was in, I believe, the North Atlantic. And I would have to look through my journals or my ship's log to find out what trip that was on. That was a long time ago. Um, yeah, that was, gosh, thinking about that. Yeah, I can still remember seeing it. <laughs> yeah, you, you see some weird stuff, but, you know, um, the underwater or unidentified submerged objects, I've never seen anything like that. I, I know they, they get reports of them, uh, especially out in the Pacific and stuff, but, nah, I haven't seen any of that weird stuff. Um, trying to think if there's any other odd, odd things that I couldn't explain out there. And I don't think there really is too much. Um, I think that was, that was definitely, that one takes the cake, but I always keep my eyes open. You know, I, I've always thought, boy, you know, I'd be the perfect victim if, uh, aliens wanted to abduct somebody because I'm out there alone. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stop anybody. (laughs) I guess to be a question of just trying to return me to my boat and see if they could find that. Ah, but, uh, yeah, so that was the only UFO sort of thing. And then the other, the other question that sort of goes along in that same, uh, framework, although I sure believe in UFOs a lot more than I believe that the earth is flat because it is not flat. I, you can see and visual, or you can, you can experience the curve of our planet really easily out there. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Uh, and I, I don't want to offend anybody that, you know, is a flat earther part of that group and stuff. It's, you know, I've seen some of those videos It can be kind of convincing, I suppose. But, um, no, the reason I know that the, the earth has a, a pretty big curve to it is, um, you know, we, we have to, in navigation, you have to learn about what's called the dipping point. Uh, so back in my day, when I learned how to navigate, we didn't really use, uh, GPS and, and, I don't think there were iPods or iPhones at that point. So we we used pen and paper and uh, did calculations and stuff. And so as you're approaching, say, uh, a big rock in the uh, on the coast that has a lighthouse on it, it's going to have what's called a dipping point. And essentially what that means is there's a point where you can't see it 
and then you're going to cross to a certain distance from it. Uh, and depending on its height is how far away you're going to be able to see it. So eventually you'll be able to see that lighthouse as it comes up over the curve of, of the horizon. And I, just as an example, I mean, some of these lighthouses, yeah, they might be a hundred feet tall and, uh, the light is at 120 feet and you might be able to see that light from, if you're standing on the deck of a boat, so you're only six feet above the water, you're probably going to see that. I used to be able to do the calculation in my head, but you're probably going to see it from about 15 or 20 miles away. And, you know, you, you can sit there and watch and watch and watch and you won't see anything. And then all of a sudden, boom, you'll see it. And as you get closer, it's just rising and rising. Now, that's just the math side of it and the navigation side. For me, one of the ways that I absolutely know is just that I will see a ship appear on my AIS. Uh, let's say it's 15 miles away. It's a big, you know, thousand foot container ship. And I'll go on deck and I can't see it. I can't see it with my binoculars. I can't see any of it. And usually the superstructure on a boat that big is probably over 100 feet or so, or maybe not 100 feet, but pretty darn close. Um, and it's bright white, uh, so it's pretty obvious. Now, if I go and I quickly go up and, and climb up the mast, even halfway, so 20 feet or a little bit more, then I look over and boom, the ship is right there. So... I'm essentially just climbing up high enough to be able to see over the curve of that horizon. And it's not as if it's a shaky, weird uh, optical lens looking through and there's some distortion. It's night and day. On the deck, I can't see the ship. I go up 20, 30 feet, and boom, the ship, it's it's there. And uh so I don't know. I that's convincing enough for me that uh that that ocean's got or that well they yeah, the ocean's got a curve. And I I think sometimes maybe that um you know, when people view ships and things like that off in the distance from land, uh if you're standing on land then you're I don't know, it's it's it, it's I think it's much more pronounced when everything around you is on the sea. So you're all really part of the curve because as many you're standing on land, then you're, you're, you're subject to the landscape and not to the actual curve of the ocean. Um, so that's, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that one actually. Cause, uh, yeah, that one's kind of crazy, but I do get that question a lot. Uh, I think people are just sort of trying to not, not make fun of them or whatever, but, um, at least, who knows? Enough said on that. Okay, so I, I'm kind of running out of time, and I want to get to – let's do one more. I've got – there's so many questions. I You know, I got to say I, I do really appreciate all the all the questions and all the love, man. You guys have been – everybody's been so supportive across the bar. I mean, there's rarely ever um, crummy, mean con comments and things like that. So I do, do appreciate it. And that's why I keep sharing this stuff out and hopefully, hopefully it inspires people. Um, but yeah, the last one is, um, you know, why do I do what I do? And, uh, that one, oh, actually, no, you know what? I scratched that one. Um, that one's just going to be me trying to come up with some sort of answer that I actually still don't have a hundred percent thought. I don't think I'll ever really know. Um, 
I, I could come up with a million excuses like, well, I want to live a interesting life or this or that. But that one, that one, I don't know. If I wanted to get into that, I think it'd be better done with uh, somebody else, uh, you know, talking with somebody and, and going over it. So let me go to this other one, which will have more of a concise answer. And that is, what do I do in a storm? Do I anchor? Do I... Uh, put sales down. So what, what do I do? What are my sort of storm tactics? And that's always going to depend upon what is, what the, uh, the weather's doing. Cause no two storms are the same. You know, I, I have a pretty standard sort of, um, pretty standard operating, uh, idea of what I'm going to do in most situations. But if, if, uh, if I am in a storm where it's really, really rough, say the waves are up above 20 feet and they're breaking and it's pretty crazy, my first instinct in those conditions is to put up very tiny amount of sail, as small as I can really, uh, and start running with the storm. So I'm sailing with the waves, I'm going with the wind, and that does what I call, it takes the sting out of it. Because because you're in a moving boat, if you're moving with the elements, you're sort of taking a little bit away from them. If you're trying to head into the wind and into the storm, you're adding to it with your own motion. And so it, it actually makes it a little bit worse. Now, sometimes you can't do that. There might be land or, or it might be pushing you in the complete wrong direction. And depending on how bad the storm is, those are sort of the decisions you have to make is... Is it worth me losing a hundred miles in the wrong direction if I if I run with this storm, or should I do something else? And the other options, basically, that I have, because I I actually with with Mighty Sparrow having a bowsprit and having Mongo on the back, the wind vane, those. Uh, there's wires and things that can get tangled up with sea anchors and drogues. Um, so I, I don't even have any of those aboard and I'm sure there's a lot of people that do use them that swear by them, but, uh, I've never, I don't want to monkey around with that sort of stuff and it might be to my own detriment, but you know, say la vie. So what I typically do is if I'm not going to just run with the storm and and try and keep the boat at a really steady sort of pace. So if you're going too slow and the waves are breaking, they can break into the cockpit and, and what's called you get pooped uh, when a huge amount of water comes in. And uh, I've had that spray all through the companionway and all that sort of stuff. Um, so you, you try not to go too slow, but you also don't want to go too fast and start getting really squirrely. Sparrow has a nice sweet spot where she can surf a wave at 15 knots and then slow down to maybe four knots, five knots, and then get picked back up. But she's she's got enough sail so that the wind will get her away from the breaking waves and then let the wave pass underneath her. Um, so that's ideal. I've, I've been knocked down before when I didn't have enough sail up, and there's basically Sparrow didn't have enough sail to get away from that breaking wave. And uh, that one hit us at a pretty weird angle. That was in the deep in the, the Pacific Ocean. 
Um, but yeah, so, so normally I would just run if I can't do that and I'm just trying to hold my position, like I just would rather be a little more comfortable then uh, I will always just go hove two. I'll put up the tiny storm jib, uh, have the triple reefed mainsail up, and Sparrow can handle a huge amount of wind. I'd say up to 50, 50 knots probably. She heels over pretty darn far when I do it, but um, once you get used to that, then it's it's pretty much okay, and she's only moving at about uh, a knot maybe. Um I have found now, though, that uh, if the waves are really steep and she's plunging off of them, it can it can hurt the bowsprit, which is what I'm fixing right now. But uh, hove to essentially all I have to do on Sparrow is backwind the jib. So I pull the jib, the storm jib, to the to the windward side, the wrong side. It, w- it would normally would be on the other side, and the mainsail's in. I sort of work with it a little bit, uh, and then I just offset Sparrow so that uh, the tiller and the rudder are all the way down on the lower side. And so essentially the boat is balancing itself out. So as it moves slowly forward, the rudder has the boat trying to turn into the wind. But with the storm jib on the wrong side of the boat, the bow is getting pushed down. And so the boat just sort of sits kind of where it's going to sit. And I'd love to be able to get Sparrow to completely stop, but I don't think uh, I just haven't been able to figure that one out yet. And I also, I mean, I typically don't have to go hove too very often. Uh, it doesn't happen too, too much. So uh, it's pretty rare. The other option, if you cannot afford to run with it or hove to, and you actually have to keep moving and try and make, make way up into whatever is coming, which does sometimes have an advantage because if you're going into what's coming at you, Typically, you're going to be out of it a bit faster. When you run with the storm, chances are you're going to stay in that storm for a longer amount of time um, just because you're you're moving with the whole thing, and, and so you're staying with it. But if you're going against it, and um, um, yeah, it's called foreaching. I learned it from John Kretschmer, who is a great author. If you're looking for the real deal, he's one of, I think he's probably the best sailing captain uh, or heavy weather sailing captain in the, uh, that's an American right now. I mean, people pay him to, to go take him, take him out into rough weather in the Atlantic. It's, and his books are great. They're super informative, but one of his, my favorite is, uh, sailing a serious ocean. And he talks about four reaching. So essentially it's, it's same sail plan as hove to, but you're actually trying to sail the boat and you're sailing the boat slow you're going into the wind. The bow of the boat is the strongest part, so it can take the most impact. And it's going to be a rough night, and it's going to be ugly, and you're going to take a lot of hits, probably get knocked down. But uh, the boat is you're, – you're, you're putting the strongest end into it. Um, and so that, that works out pretty good. I've only forereached a couple of times, and it's never been out of any more necessity than me just trying to hold my course – uh, and it wasn't ever in really rough conditions. Um, all the, the worst weather I've ever been in, I have always been running straight with it and uh, just letting Sparrow rip, basically. Um, you know, some of the steepest waves were in the South Atlantic, just north of the Falkland Islands, where I was able to get over 20 knots of boat speed. 
Um, Sparrow does a great job because she has that long keel and just rips down a wave and just keeps going straight. She doesn't have much inclination to try and round up or anything like that because that's that's the scary thing is you get in those situations and something happens, something breaks, or the boat turns so that the the side of your boat is exposed to the breaking waves. That's where the rollovers happen. That's where the damage happens. And uh, that's a nightmare scenario for sure. So uh, that's basically what I do in a storm. And once I buckle down, uh, running with the storm, like trying to sleep in that can be a little tricky. But again, once you're so tired, you're, you're still, you're going to be able to sleep and you get used to that motion. It's hard when you're surfing really hard because uh, that's loud and it, Normally the whole boat vibrates, but hove two, once you get used to the, the fact that you're healing, you know, at 30, 40 degrees, then, um, no problem. You can sleep pretty well, uh, in that situation too. So that's typically what I do in a storm, but, uh, normally I try and avoid them as best I can, or at least try and stay on the side of the storm where, uh, I get to run with it because that I find they, they call that the Mauticier method from Bernard Mortissier, but he copied it from Vito Dumas. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, that's what I would do. And, um, you know, it, it all depends on the type of boat you have really. And what I found with Sparrow is, is that, and I actually found with Sparrow, it sails better with just a teeny bit of mainsail up than with a jib, which is totally counterintuitive. If you're going downwind you would think, yeah, oh, I put the sail all the way at the end up, put the jib up, but I've I've found that all that happens when you do that is the jib collapses and then it fills and it bangs, and uh, I learned that going through a pretty pretty heavy duty gale um, near the Cape of Good Hope on the big trip. So it was not a fun night, and the boat stayed more uh, angled than I wanted it to, and. Um, the next time I tried with just the mainsail and she tracked like a champ. So it was all good. All right. So that's, uh, over, over the old hour mark. And, um, my voice is starting to go hoarse. <laughs> uh, but again, I just want to thank everybody for, for all the support and everything. You really do appreciate it. You guys have been great. I'm going to keep putting stuff out. Uh, hopefully I get some more YouTube videos out. Obviously the TikTok is, uh, it's continuing on, um, you know, day after day and, um, yeah, still working on the next book about the, uh, the doldrums. So, and I hopefully, hopefully I'm going to have an interview, uh, with my old man. He, uh, took a powerboat from the East coast up through the Erie canal and up through some of the great lakes. So I'd like to hear some of the, the tales of woe on that, that trip. And, uh, that, that should be pretty cool if I can catch him before he leaves and then, uh, yeah, hopefully some more interviews and then continue on the series about, uh, this last voyage. So have a great day guys. And thanks so much.